0: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up?
1: Oh, just keeping busy. How about you, Leslie?
0: I'm watching a lot of Dodger games, staying very busy because, you know, work is still very busy. It's been a crazy couple couple of days here.
1: And there's also now NBA games and hockey games. Man, the world is back to normal, except for all of the ways the world is not back to normal.
0: Yeah, I really miss hugging and yeah, it'd be <laughs> nice to, to, to give you a hug in person or high five you after we record a good interview and, or you know, an episode. But uh, yeah, this one, uh, a special shout out uh, to you and to our great producer, Matt Whitehurst, and to our former uh, producer, Josh, as well, who's Who we miss regularly, so. Hugs to everyone. Hugs for everyone. Well, let's dive into this week's headlines. What do you say, Dan? Absolutely. Up first, Amazon has handed out a series order for its take on A League of Their Own and signed a first look deal with Lizzo and renewed Hunters for a second season. That's a big sentence. Lots going on.
1: It is. And for more on Hunters, you should check out our interview with showrunner David Weil in episode 59 from February, which seems like a thousand thousand years ago.
0: And if you want more on the Le- from League of Their Own, I will have an exclusive interview with the co-creators of the show, posting on THR.com Friday morning.
1: Over on Apple, Apple is prepping a cop drama from Robert Downey Jr., who may play a supporting role in the series. The tech giant has also inked a first-look film and TV deal with Leonardo DiCaprio's company.
0: In other streaming news, Netflix is reuniting vice duo Amy Adams and Adam McKay for a limited series called Kings of America. The streamer has also renewed Money Heist for a fifth and final season. Over at Peacock, Craig Robinson will star in comedy Killing It from Brooklyn Nine-Nine co-creator Dan Gore in a reunion with the Pontiac Bandit.
1: Comedy Central continues to ramp up its adult-focused animation roster and has picked up a new season of The Ren and Stimpy Show with no involvement from its gross-as-hell creator and tapped former Fox and Marvel executive Grant Gish to oversee the division.
0: In cancellation news, Hulu has cancelled High Fidelity after one season, Boo!, Freeform has killed Siren after three seasons, and the CW has yanked British import Taskmaster after one low rated episode, which is a potential troubling sign of what's to come for fall if the broadcast networks can't get scripted shows back on the air.
1: Yeah, man, when when the CW is pulling something because it's not performing high enough ratings for a summer show on the CW... Man, that is a that yeah, is a was, thing that is happening. <laughs> it
0: was like a, a point one in the demo and like two hundred thousand people. That's that's bad.
1: Ah, in development news, Sony is prepping a sequel to Who's the Boss with Tony Danza and Alyssa Milano set to reprise their roles. Oh yeah. It comes as the indie studio is also shopping the library to the former ABC comedy.
0: You sound very excited about that, Dan. I can't tell. Are you are you being sincere <laughs> that, I... that you're very excited about this sequel? I am not very excited about
1: the sequel, but I am more excited for the sequel, remake, reboot, update, revival than some of them. I don't know. I mean, at least unlike Fuller House, Who's the Boss is a TV show I watched as a child. So at least there's that much.
0: (laughs) Same. In production related news, CBS is moving forward with the second season of Love Island, which will be filmed in Vegas with the cast living and filming inside an NBA like bubble. The series will return August 24th. Welcome news for people missing their unscripted shows from the summer.
1: At NBC, the network has severed ties with American Ninja Warrior champ Drew Dreschel after he was charged with child sex crimes.
0: And wrapping things up, Lifetime, not Hallmark, will be the first network to feature a holiday movie with an LGBTQ romance at its center.
1: Can't hardly wait.
0: Yeah, more more coming from Hallmark now that they have a new executive uh, running the ship over there. So we'll wait and see what they do. But so far, the first batch of their holiday movies, no LGBTQ stuff. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one.
1: Leading off this week. NBC Entertainment Chairman Paul Talegdi is out at the broadcast network and former Lifestyle Network's President Francis Berwick is taking on a new role at the company. Leslie, this all comes basically a week after you had a very, very, very damning story that you did with our great colleague Kim Masters about the situation with Paul Talegdi at NBC. So update us on where that stands and what this all means.
0: Yes. Well, Telegdi is out less than a week after we posted the story. We talked to a lot of sources, past and present, who were with the company, who all allege that Telegdi and, uh, by association, his head of alternative, Meredith R., engaged in a racist, sexist, and homophobic behavior and and basically just contributed to a toxic workplace. Um, The investigation, while while Telegdi is out, the investigation into NBC's workplace culture continues. That is, I'm told, is just starting. Meredith R remains with the company. We'll see what happens there. But yes, this was a story that, that Kim Masters and I spent a lot of time reporting and talking to a, a considerable number of, of sources. And the stories were, were pretty near universal on this one. So what does this mean? Right now, it means that NBC does not have a dedicated network chairman overseeing the entire network's entertainment unit. Um What it does mean is that the parent company, NBC Universal, is restructuring its TV business and they're launching, rather than having kind of a vertically integrated system where you have... A lifestyle networks president like Francis Berwick and Paul Telegdy and Chris McCumber, who oversees USA and Sci-Fi, all kind of reporting up the ladder into one executive. Now you're gonna have Berwick taking on this considerable new role. She is going to lead a new division that's called the Entertainment Business Unit. And she's now gonna be in charge with considering the overall programming strategy and content spending across all of the TV units. So that means NBC, USA, Sci-Fi, Bravo, Oxygen, E, etc. This is a huge new purview for her. She's a 30-year veteran of NBCU, well-liked, well-respected. On top of that, NBC Universal is searching for an executive to oversee a new unit that, that, that will focus entirely on entertainment programming. What that means is You've got the scripted division, unscripted division, late night alternative, all original programming across NBC, all the cable networks, as well as Peacock. That's a huge job. Um, Right now, the closest thing that the company has to that is Bill McGoldrick, who came up through USA and Sci-Fi and who oversees original programming for Peacock, as well as USA and Sci-Fi. This new role that they're going to hire, we know that um, an executive who's with Netflix and who, who used to be at Universal Television has already turned down that that post. But this new role will have a considerable purview. So just like Berwick oversees all of, all of the strategy and the content spending, this person is going to oversee divisions, including alternative and unscripted and, and late night and scripted. And basically, we're going to see NBCU buy content and then Take it into Francis and say, "Here's where this could live, and here's how we could roll these things out." And we've already kind of seen the company, um, at, at least, explore some early looks at doing that. You know, we've seen shows like uh, the upcoming Chucky, for example, which was picked up at at, at Sci Fi. That's going to air across at least the plan for now. I hear will air on both USA and Sci Fi, which is something that the cable networks did with a show called The Purge before they they canceled that one. So now you're going to basically see you know, uh, Francis Berwick and this executive to be named later, overseeing a combined and more integrated company where it's not just about USA has its own development team and its own alternative team and its own, you know, acquisitions, you know, team. Now you're going to see all of those roles consolidated under Francis Berwick and under the programming executive that they're going to hire. So it's unclear if they're going to look for, you know, so. It's those two executives. and in terms of who that second person is, they're they're searching for a new for for someone to take that role. We don't know if they're going to promote internally. There's a lot of rumors going around right now. I'm not going to get into to those here, but they could bring someone in from outside the company. It's a It's a wait and see. So as as for what this means for Meredith R, we know that NBC is continuing forward with the investigation into into the culture at the network as Telegdy has already gone. So we'll we'll wait and see the results of that investigation, which is just getting started. And we're trying to figure out who exactly is overseeing that. So,
1: okay, take a deep breath before we move on to our second second topic, Leslie.
0: (laughs) But I mean, look, in in the larger sense on this one, it's you're seeing NBCU better position itself for for the future. And, And what that means is linear networks, if we said on this show for many, many weeks and months now, is that. Linear networks are no longer the, the top game in town. It's all about streaming, and they're basically going to streamline the entire company to better position it for the future. And they're going to turn into and, and look at what Viacom CBS is doing, where they have one dedicated programming team that oversees content for a number of different networks, and maybe even CBS All Access too. So there's a lot move a lot of moving parts, and this is honestly just not surprising at a, at a time when when a lot of these networks are are struggling. You know, we'll get into Disney's earnings and they lost something almost five billion dollars in the second quarter. But it's not surprising to see this because you're going to start to see layoffs. It's basically what's happening is the the state of the economy is prompting these networks to do things that they probably should have done a few years ago when the the landscape shifted towards streaming. So I hope that makes sense. Does that make sense?
1: It makes enough sense. Okay, good. On to our next topic. Number two.
0: Up second, Disney is making some major changes in its streaming strategy. As I mentioned, you know, Disney lost $4.7 billion in the second quarter alone. To help offset that, the company announced that it will release its big budget feature film, Mulan, on Disney Plus for an additional $30 charge to subscribers. So you're paying the monthly fee to have Disney plus plus the $30 charge to see the movie. So the blockbuster will be available in the U S and other select markets on Disney plus starting September 4th. The movie was scheduled for a box office debut in March and had been rescheduled three times before being taken off the calendar completely. Cause you know, look the movies and the U S that's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, meanwhile, in territories that don't get Disney plus the film will be released theatrically. So this is all basically part of what Bo- Disney CEO, Bob Chapek said is a one-time strategy, though he did leave the door open and said that the company will plan to study the launch for how consumers respond to this new model. Dan, this is, a, this is the guinea pig. Mulan is the guinea pig to see if they will get moviegoers to spend money to watch big budget feature films at home.
1: It's a guinea pig, but it's not the guinea pig because we've been getting guinea pigs all spring we've been getting little guinea pigs like how quickly invisible man and birds of prey came onto on demand at the beginning of the pandemic then we got slightly larger guinea pigs like the couple movies that have come out pseudo theatrically on demand uh with a price tag of 20 bucks like the Judd Apatow movie which you know some people talked about that week and hasn't really been in the conversation since. So hard Is that, to know. Would that
0: be like the king of Staten Island?
1: That would indeed be the king of Staten Island. So... Yeah, there's no way of actually telling how those things have worked. This is a different thing, obviously. This is very different from An American Pickle going straight to HBO Max when it at some point had been scheduled for a theatrical release. I don't think anyone thought that An American Pickle was going to be a blockbuster, whereas Disney had a lot invested in Mulan. This is a way to get a fair amount of money in a hurry and... Depending on who you are and what your viewership habits are, I don't think it's a horrible price point. I, you know, 20 bucks for something like King of Staten Island, that's for a two day rental window. Now, my understanding of Mulan is it's one of those things where if you pay the $30, as long as you are a subscriber to Disney Plus, it will be in your account in perpetuity. So if you watch it and if your kids enjoy it, the possibility at least exists that they could watch it 800 times in the next few weeks. So if you take that as a possibility, it doesn't actually sound like that much money at all. If you have two or three kids and you were already planning on going to the movies and your kids like popcorn and all of that, this is
0: it's cheaper.
1: Yeah, this is cheaper. It is not the same theatrical experience, obviously, but it is a much saner environment. If you have a little one who, for example, needs to run out and use the bathroom every 15 minutes or another child who likes to obsessively watch the same movie over and over again. This is
0: a or really, a spouse who likes to do the same thing. Or hypothetically <laughs> speaking, a
1: spouse who likes to do the same thing. So, yeah, it's it seems to me like this is a an entirely worthy thing to do for a movie that, you know, they obviously had blockbuster hopes for, but I don't know that they felt it was necessarily a guaranteed sure thing. I don't know how you could. So they'll get some money. And if you're losing the amount of money that apparently Disney is losing, this is not to say that Disney did not make enough money last year that they can can't deal with this. But, you know, losing nearly $5 billion in any quarter is, uh, uh Notable, to say the least. Yeah, that's got to be a scary thing. There's just no way. Like, unless you are Jeff Bezos, losing that kind of money is always going to be terrifying. And even Jeff Bezos probably would miss five billion dollars on some level. So, yeah, I I find this I find this as uh, an interesting strategy. There were a lot of uh, parody Twitter accounts that fooled a lot of people who made similar announcements about things like this also happening with Black Widow in November. That is not happening, at least not Not now. But yeah, who knows? At what point does Disney start saying we've got these 10 movies in the pipeline? At one point, we thought we were going to make X amount of money nationwide, but now we can maybe make a few quick bucks through this model on Disney Plus. I don't know why they wouldn't do it on a few more. But maybe the Marvel things are different. Maybe a few of the other things are are different. But this is a this is a big movie that's yeah, I mean, going look, on demand.
0: <laughs> and look, it, it's monetizing content that that the U.S. audience would not be able to access otherwise. You know, internationally, look, we, we see the state of the world. You know, the U.S. is is a dumpster fire right now. And if this is an opportunity for Disney to monetize content that they wouldn't have before at a time when the company's already losing billions of dollars, it, it's it doesn't take a rocket scientist to make that decision, um, you know, it, and look and announcing it on an earnings call is a fantastic way to distract Wall Street and Hollywood from the fact that they lost almost five billion dollars in one quarter alone and, guess what? The third quarter is not going to get any better with the because the movie theaters are not going to open anytime soon here, which means that that's going to be another hit that you've seen coming. You know, look, the future is, is bleak if you're Disney and you're looking at box office and and even theme park admissions and, and how what's going on there. You know, look, giving people a movie to watch at home, even if it's 30 bucks at a time when people, most people are still not leaving the house. It's not, a, to me, it, it's a win-win. And look, we'd, even if you were going to buy Mulan on DVD, it's 20, 30 bucks when it comes out anyway, right? So if you still buy DVDs like I do, but, you know, to me, to me, it's, you know, we're going to watch, we'll we'll spend the 30 bucks on it. You know, we we also paid uh, 20 bucks to watch The King of Staten Island, you know? So new entertainment at a time when there's not a lot of new content coming and which we'll get to in Critics Corner this week. To me, it's a win.
1: Yeah, I've been, I've been mostly not paying for those. uh, But on the other hand, if you give me something like, Palm Springs or Old Guard or an American pickle on a service that I'm already getting that I will definitely watch. Uh, One of the one of the most interesting things to me about this Disney earnings call was that they gave the 60 million subscriber figure for Disney Plus. But because of the nature of quarters in the year, basically the quarter marker cut off immediately before Whatever bump they did or didn't get for the arrival of Hamilton on Disney Plus, which is really the only thing they've had all spring that has had the potential to move the needle, unless you think that Artemis Fowl did big numbers, which I'm sure probably did by some standards, but I don't think they got a huge number of subscribers out of that. Whereas I know that Disney Plus got at least some new subscribers. Hi, Mom and Dad. Out of, uh, out of Hamilton. So I, I feel like there have to be others there. But instead, because of the nature of quarters, this cut off right before those numbers, which either would have been better or more disappointing. So we don't yeah. know on that one.
0: <laughs> well, we'll find we'll find that out in a few months. It's been a busy week of of financial story of, of major stories with financial implications here. So up third of another one, Dan.
1: Number three,
0: the battle over packaging fees is winding down in a surprise fashion.
1: Indeed, this will be our second Leslie explains things to stupid Dan segment of the week. Oh, stop. <laughs> OK, fine. Leslie explains things to our stupid listeners. No, our no. listeners are. Exactly. Our listeners are smart people. Dan is occasionally a dumb person. And so no. every,
0: every. Come on.
1: Everybody needs perspective. And you are very smart, Leslie. That is all I am saying. So. What right. the, so what the news is, is that this week, ICM partners, one of Hollywood's four biggest agencies, signed a new franchise agreement with the Writers Guild. So, Leslie. Break down why the kids should care about this or be interested in this or what it means.
0: <laughs> well, look, I mean, I don't know how interested our listeners are. are in, and I'll I'll say right now that we'll keep this one short. You know, in the big, big scheme of things, it means that ICM, you know, which is, again, one of the big, big four agencies in town. They rep people like Shonda Rhimes and, and Vince Gilligan, among others. It means that they can rep writers again and that the, that ICM is agreeing to end That the the practice of packaging TV shows what's packaging packaging again is the practice of when you pair a writer with a a, with talent and a director an IP or a book etc or a new script and the agency takes a fee to do that um, on top of commissions etc so so why is this surprising. You know, look, the battle between the Association of Talent Agencies and the WGA was the biggest story in Hollywood before the pandemic. Both sides were extremely divided and both sides were unwilling to make any sort of compromise. So what changed? Well, everything. You know, the the, the entire world changed. When you look at the state of the economy, agencies have not been immune from from the turmoil and all of the big four agencies, among others, have had to undergo layoffs and furloughs of agents as well as support staff. And when you look around the landscape, who which part of the industry has been unaffected? Writers. Writers are working throughout this entire pandemic. They're working on remote Zoom rooms. They're coming up with pitches. They're they're writing episodes. Everyone is gearing up and loading up on scripts so that when it is safe to resume production, you can go and start production and get back right. You know, you can hit hit the gas and you go. So, you know, agencies have not been able to collect commissions on writers because all the writers fire, fired their agencies out of loyalty to the to the Writers Guild in the battle over packaging. So now you can see these agencies are the writers can come back. We've seen Krista Vernoff told us last week that she signed with UTA this week, UTA, which was the last major agency to sign the Code of Conduct before um, ICM did so. They just signed the good, uh, the good Fight creators, Michelle and Robert King. So these agencies are looking at writers as a source of revenue at a time when, well, there's not a lot of revenue to be had. So, you know, there's two agencies left that haven't agreed to end practicing. And those are the two agencies that are the most heavily invested in that. CAA, which has a division called WIP, fronted by former ABC Entertainment President Paul Lee. They produce shows like Apple's Dickinson. And WME, which has Endeavor content, which is behind shows like The Eddie and HBO Max's upcoming Tokyo Voice. Both are rumored to be exploring deals with the WGA, though it's unclear what that will mean for their respective production entities. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of overall deals coming up and a lot of script buys and et cetera. And now the agencies can get their commissions. This is revenue at a time when revenue is scarce. So what does it mean for the kids at home? Probably nothing. But... (laughs) Unless you're unless you know an agent, unless you're friends with an agent or a writer, in which case the writers can have guidance from their agents and help them sell sell scripts. And maybe new and upcoming writers can help get staffed because now they have someone who's out there speaking on their behalf and, and working for them. So, yeah.
1: Excellent. The more you know, and there's a star flying across our screen.
0: Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment.
1: Number four. Our guest this week is Bill Lawrence, the prolific creator, co-creator, or executive producer of shows including Scrubs, Cougartown, Spin City, Undateable, and more recently, ABC's short-lived action dramedy, Whiskey Cavalier. Next up for the longtime Warner Brothers-based producer is Apple's soccer, or football, comedy Ted Lasso, which he co-created with star Jason Sudeikis. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Oh, I can't wait. I love talking about TV. Let's do it.
0: So... Leading off, you know, can you talk us through how you first got involved with Ted Lasso? I mean, it's kind of an interesting path for this show where it was originally a promo for NBC Sports and then now it's a TV series on Apple.
2: Look, the uh, I, it started with me chasing down Jason Sudeikis as a guy that uh, as, a, as a TV fan and a movie fan, he's always been this affable actor. He can be a romantic lead. He can be a comedic lead. And uh, I thought he was a perfect guy to kind of try and do a streaming show with. And um, once we met and talked about it, he said, uh, um, you got any interest in doing this Ted Lasso thing as a series? I had seen those videos back in the day. And my initial reaction was it'd be like trying to make a series out of a sketch or like like the way Naked Gun or Police Squad can only go 13 episodes. I was hesitant, but he said, no, I want to do it with you because I want to try and make a three dimensional character and have some pathos and it sounded like a cool, fun challenge, so I said, Why not and that's that's how we got here.
1: well, you've always been a a passionate defender of working in the broadcast t v space. Was there any situation in which this could have been a network series?
2: I don't think so you look the the that landscape you guys i' I' been talking about this a bunch that landscape has changed so much so very fast, I mean it reminds me you know kind of, Look, until recently, there was always a network show that was on my viewing schedule as a fan. You know, I mean, even Modern Family still was. And network TV has changed so quickly. I don't think that there was a way that this existed there, not only because of the content matter, but because Jason was, you know, he's all about verisimilitude and authenticity. And he's like, we need to shoot in London. You know, it needs to be an actual Premier League stadiums, have all British cast. And uh, I, you know, I think in the, the modern network world, that's not really available to you.
1: Is there a part of you that feels a little bit guilty about that? That sort of that you're forsaking this this land <laughs> that you've done so much
2: work in? Uh, look, man, I, I've I've enjoyed cable and streaming shows. You know, I, I started out in network TV because I'm a thousand years old, Dan. You know that, and uh, <laughs> not, you know, and and I sure I would have done more if these things all existed back then. But no, you know, um, I think what's really interesting is I even find myself, I used to love the rules, you know, network TV, would be like, Hey, you got to operate within these creative parameters, but you get to do 22 to 26 episodes a season that might last eight or nine years, you know, and, uh, you get to create a world and a family and a group you love. And now right or wrong, the dynamic is as why it's so hard to even hire writers on network. Uh, it's uh, Hey, if you do streaming, you only get to do 10 shows, but the odds are very high that it'll last at least two or three seasons. What about network? Well, then you get to do 13 episodes, one season. <laughs> you know. And so the game has changed so much. The, you know, kind of the reason for playing on that playing field has, has gone away a little bit, at least for me.
0: Yeah, and you know, obviously mentioning the streaming space, you've had a, a deal with Warner Brothers for 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 a very long time, and delivered a lot of hits for that studio. And now, when I look at the stuff that you're working on next, you're developing head of the class for HBO Max, Clone High for MTV Studios. There's no network on that one yet, and obviously Ted Ted Lasso. But I think, you know, given the way that you know you're given the history that you have in in network with where your energy is being spent today. Do you ever foresee yourself going back and developing another show for broadcast?
2: Uh, You know, it's it's really interesting because you brought up a a bunch of things that I find fascinating. I look, I still believe in broadcast television as a a way to reach, you know, a big, broad audience. And in my head, I still want to believe I teach the writers go to showrunners training project. And I always say, you know, we have this fantasy of like. Cable and streaming is art and a circle over here, and network TV is commerce. But some of my favorite shows are where those two circles overlap a little bit, you know? And I think that's still possible. Do I think I'll be running uh, a network show full-time? No, but I think our company will still make them, you know, because there's young writers that we try to get through the system. And because I still think they're probably the best marketplace for multi-camera sitcoms currently, which I still love. I'm a dinosaur. I like doing them. It always drives me crazy when you're in and amongst the television community in L.A. and we all talk about, you know... TV that we love and it's usually, uh, single camera stuff and edgy stuff. And then my own kids who consume tons of media. I'm like, what are you watching? Oh, we're watching friends reruns and big bang reruns, (laughs) you know, and they still, and they grew up on Disney multis. So they, they, I still, still think there's a place for, for network TV. You know, I'm more interested in before this kind of pandemic hit, there were all these massive deals going down. And so I'm really interested to see if we live in a marketplace where any studio, continues to make stuff for places outside their studio. You know what I mean? That's to me going to be what the most interesting thing is. You know, can you work at Warner Brothers and put a network show on ABC? I don't know. You know, uh, I don't know if that paradigm exists anymore.
0: Yeah. It, you know, especially, you know, vertical integration on the networks and studio side has been going on for a long time. But now yeah. you're starting to see it stretch beyond that, where people are keeping content and developing it just for their own streaming platforms. Now that you've got Peacock and HBO Max and Disney Plus and well, you get the idea. So,
2: yeah, it's it's not unlike how quickly things started happening when cell phones came around, because my kids still don't believe you know, the fact that uh, I grew up without one. So I'm, I'm really interested to see, you know, I think that's going to be cool once the green flag starts, hopefully, and production gets to, you know, start going again to see which one of these organizations, you know, kind of rises to the top and which ones not become obsolete. But, you know, I'm sure you two wouldn't be surprised if certain Places cease to be content creators. And and, uh, I mean, we all I I think just looking from a start, you go, wow, Disney Plus is going to be a juggernaut. You know, Netflix is a juggernaut. HBO Max are going to figure it out. And they got so much of a library and content and who kind of stays in the game beyond all those guys. I don't know. You know, it'll be interesting to see
1: now. While you've been primarily on broadcast, you've done a couple of cable things before, but even those shows were shows that realistically could have been on broadcast with only the most minor of of tweaks. This, though, does feel like something different. You know, episodes run 30 to 34 minutes. They're swearing, et cetera, et cetera. What was the learning curve like? What did you enjoy most about the freedom of it all?
2: You know, for me, I I, I do enjoy the, the, the kind of the playing field. My favorite streaming shows are ones that do have the feeling of a, a beginning and an end to the episode, but also have a, a, a huge uh, serialized part of the episodes, you know? And, and, you know, I grew up in an era that you were never encouraged to do that. You know, I, I remember being told by like the first network television president that I ever spoke to, you know, back in Spin City days of like your most passionate fan is only going to watch one out of every three episodes. So you need to be self-contained so that if someone watches the first and the fifth episode, they're not going to be lost, you know, and uh, that was its own kind of, you know, storytelling. And now the only streaming Even cable shows you see like that are things like Black Mirror, where there is no second episode, you know, otherwise you're living in this world where you go, oh, we can do a scene that doesn't pay off until two episodes down the line. I really like that. It's a fun way to to think about storytelling.
0: And especially when you, with a service like Apple, where they'll drop an entire season uh, all in one weekend, or they'll they'll toy with the release schedule and say, well, maybe we'll do three episodes in week one, et cetera. But like when you don't know how these episodes are going to be released and the frequency with which they they will, does that change how you approach crafting the season long arc?
2: It it does a little bit, you know, I I mean, I think uh, we we were hinted at the beginning that their plan with our show was to do three episodes and then week to week because they wanted to, you know, part of our pitch was to make our version of a, a throwback sports movie, you know, especially, Now that we are in an era that even though everybody has a favorite one, no one remembers their most recent favorite one. If you ask anybody, they're always like Hoosiers, Rudy, Major League, Bull Durham, you know, um, Friday Night Lights might be the most modern one, you know? Uh, And so they had always hit us up from the start of three episodes and then week to week so that we can kind of build an extra content thing the way that you would build a sports season. So, and yeah, they could have changed it. And that burden for me was really interesting because I I found myself looking at myself as a still psychotic viewer of TV. There's some streaming shows that lose me if they do three episodes of setup, you know, when there's so many options. If I find myself as a viewer going, come on already, you know, uh, I might be out and onto something else. So that did feel like an odd burden of going, oh, so we're releasing like a three-episode movie. It can't just be all expositional setup, you know, and then uh, an episode to episode type thing. It was it was a weird way to think about creating content based on a release schedule, if that makes sense.
1: Now, when it came to charting out the season long arc for this, how quickly and consistently did Major League come up as your point of reference? And what was the balance of kind of steering into that comparison versus differentiating?
2: Well, I'll do some spoilers and I'm okay with spoilers, but I'm warning people in case they hear. So one of the things that we wanted to do is, I don't mind tropes as long as you put a spin on them, you know? And so Jason and I were talking and we're like, oh, we want people to go, oh, it's major league. Um, and get familiar. And right when they get familiar, which is why I think they only released the first three episodes for review, we throw in massive twists and switching it up so that people will... So that's the trick, is to go, hey, here's something familiar. Uh, for those of you that like that, you'll hopefully get comfortable. And those of you that don't like it, when you hit the fourth episode, you'll go, oh, wait, this is completely different than what we thought. And the trick of it is if you do a sports movie you go uh oh and the end is the underdog's win and everybody's happy how do you uh circumvent that and uh uh I think we did you know uh we'll see we'll see how it. we'll see how it goes and how everybody else perceives it but not but yeah we we really leaned into it so much so that for true fans there is a intentional line in the finale that Jason Sudeikis put in there just to give a tip of the hat to major league since we loved that stuff when we were kids
0: as someone who loves that movie and and baseball to begin with, I, you know, I, I messaged Dan after I watched the pilot. I'm like, you didn't tell me that this is basically Major League, but with soccer. Uh,
2: <laughs> <you know. laughs> We're no dummies. Come on. Major League worked. There's, by the way, and there's, you'll see, I would say if you like sports movies, you will see a reminiscent moment intentionally from every one of your favorites, be it Hoosiers, and run the picket fence in him, or Bull Durham with Go Scare Him, you know, all the scenes that shape Jason. Jason and I are both sports nerds, and it's something that we miss, you know, which is Friday Night Lights gave us a little, both a little bit of that. We were both fans, but not the fun comedy part of it, you know what I mean? And that was kind of more rooted in, in drama and pathos. And for us, uh, those are the ones that we miss the most
0: yeah and especially you know when you release something like this at a time where we are look baseball just started up again it's kind of a disaster well not kind of. it is a disaster
2: uh, yeah i'm a phillies fan they played three games <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah oh yeah you, you know better than me than anybody yeah. you know but but to release the show at, at a time like this i mean does it is that does it make the timing of it all more meaningful especially for a show that that is just inherently optimistic
2: Uh, look, this is, I want to toot Jason's horn because I've been very careful to say I'm a comedy writer. I love cynical, edgy shows. I could, you know, we could just digress and talk about Selena Meyer as the best, edgiest, soulless, heartless, most heartless character ever. And, uh, I watched every episode of Veep and I, uh, am in constant envy of everybody that just got to come up with new ways to curse each other out. But when Jason came, he said, um, the one thing I want to do, and it was pre-pandemic, but it was still a very rough time, you know, in our kind of political landscape and dialogue is so very cynical and we are all inherently distrustful of one another. Part of his pitch was he said, I really want to make a relentlessly optimistic and hopeful show. And that doesn't mean that it won't have pathos and heartbreak and, and, and some of that stuff in it. But he said, I want Ted Lasso to be the type of guy we've all met, a man or woman, that when you initially meet them, you go, oh, this can't be real. This person is eventually going to pull the mask off and be a huge jerk, you know. And uh, and the rare occasions that those people turn out to be sincere, you end up looking at yourself going like, when did I, I said this to my daughter who has um, a friend who wants to go into politics, and I was by the way, and this is a 23 year old. And I was inherently immediately skeptical of who they were I'm like, because in my head, I'm like, anybody who would want to go into politics is probably a horrible person. My daughter's like, no, no, he's great. You know? And, uh, uh, I'm like, wow, how did I get to be that person? Uh, am I that jaded? And Jason was really hoping to tap into that stuff.
1: But it's interesting because the character in the shorts is really more of, of a jackass, honestly. he He's just sort yeah. of this, this blithely oblivious American stereotype to some degree. And you guys have kind of retrofitted him so that it becomes a different kind of character trait. But how do you make those traits come to the surface without making the character into a Pollyanna and someone who we really just don't want to be following along for 10 episodes?
2: Well, yeah, you got it. You got it. There's two there's two things. OK, one is It's way too much subtext for a comedy, but we, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Will Rogers and talking about the nostalgic version of what a great American was, which sometimes was kind of uh, a simple yet naive yet good-natured guy or gal. You know that uh, Jason equated it to the public discourse right now that drives him crazy is ignorance with arrogance, which you could apply to politicians, to whatever. He's like the attitude of, uh, I don't know anything about that, but I know more about it than anybody in the world. And he said, if I can get this guy out of being just a rube and be, uh, I don't know anything about that, but I'm willing to learn. And once I know, you know, I won't make the same mistakes. Um, he's like, I think we have something here. And, and part of the journey, you know, as you watch deeper into the year He's, uh, dumb, like, you know, he, he he prides himself on being dumb, like a fox, you know what I mean? And is he, he becomes craftier than people think. And, uh, you know, there's a line late in the year that he said, I've spent my whole life with people underestimating me. So he, without a doubt, rather than the sketch version of those promos, which were exactly what you're talking about, Dan is, uh, he's kind of weaponized his good natured, naive charm in a way, um, You know, for good, luckily, and not for for cynical, nefarious means. But um, the burden was creating a three-dimensional character fast. You know, the the fifth episode of this show veers completely into how a a, a supposedly happily married family man uh, would up and leave his wife and young child and come all the way to London. In a way that I found and Jason wrote it that I found absolutely, you know, heartbreaking and surprising for this type of show. So
1: now you have a, an interesting situation with this show where you co-created it with Jason and then another of the characters co-creators is one of the co-stars and another of the stars of the show is a writing assistant and wrote one of the scripts. How does that change the dynamic when you have so many writers on the show who are also in front of the camera people?
2: Uh, yeah. And the, the guy that plays Roy in the show is, a uh, uh, not only, uh, uh, an actor on the show, but he's a producer of the show and he created his own show on AMC that, uh, just got picked up for a second season. Hasn't come out yet. You know, I like this world of performer writers. It, it is a shortcut in the writer's room in the sense that more often than not, you know, even the other writers that haven't been in the show a lot are comedians and comedians and having them actually say and perform, you know, the material before you ever go and shoot it in a writer's room is such a shortcut, you know, and only doable in these kind of streaming scenarios where you get to write all the shows, you know, before production even starts. Uh, so that's great. The downside for me is as anybody that does this job, I'm sure I have control freak as part of my nature. You know, Daniel, I'm sure Kevin Beagle told you that. And then (laughs) I hope that he realizes that he has it himself now too. Um, and so for me to venture back into what it does make you do is venture back into the true, like the last time I had a true partnership was back in Spin City days, you know, when Mike Fox, if he didn't like something or wanted it to go a different direction, then it went a different direction. <laughs> and so now, you know what I mean? And now I'm partners with someone else that uh, or a group of people. That are like, uh, no, Bill. We know you like this, but we're not going to do it. I'm oh, like, <laughs> oh, So I'm going to stay here later tonight. Oh, okay. Uh, so and that is uh, has been kind of an interesting. I think it's healthy for me in that uh, uh, forces you kind of to open your ears and listen to others a little bit. You know, what kind of things did they overrule you on? Uh, I don't know. You want to start with everything? No, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, nah. like the uh, uh, it, it became a joke in the writers' room too because you get caught in patterns. And if I was uh, if any of, if I ever pitched anything that sounded reminiscent of Scrubs, those guys, <laughs> the, the nightmare for me was that they had seen it before because they would they could pick it out of a jo- they could pick it out of nine thousand. That's like the Scrubs thing when you do you can't do that again. I'm like I'm trying to be lazy here, man. Give me a break. Let me get home. Um, But no, Jace is just super protective of the character. Um, And when you start that climate from the top, because he's really a a co-showrunner, then the other actors and actresses in the writer's room got to be super protective of their characters. And then you're like, hey, it's the third week of writing. And I got six different people saying my character wouldn't say that. This is is a little tricky. No, but it was it was it was uh, all in good fun.
0: So for something that originated as a short form promo, have you guys all talked about how much runway you have with the show? Like, do you have a six season plan? I mean, as someone who comes from the broadcast space, that's what most of those deals look like. But
2: I know we pitched uh, a um, start to finish three season plan to uh, Apple. And uh, um, just from the nature of what you guys have already spotted, yes, you know that The season three doesn't end with Ted Lasso dead in an alley. You know what I mean? It's an an optimistic show. But that gave us the leeway to do some ups and downs that I think people won't see coming uh, in the first two seasons.
1: Do you have to find different sources for kind of drama and pathos when you have a hero as good As Ted Lasso, because that was something I was thinking throughout is we know he might do things that are wrong, but we know that his motives are always going to be pure. And that kind of puts him in a particular place as a hero.
2: It's a great uh, uh, conversation. Something that went back to the um, Spin City days for me of of talking to Mike Fox about it, which is, you know, because he wanted to play an inherently, you know, Mike's burden or gift is that even when he was on, you know, Boston Legal, he comes with this baggage that you go deep down, that's a good guy. You know what <laughs> I mean? And, and you can't, you can't get around it. And, uh, and I think your lead character has to be painfully flawed to on some way and not just oblivious, naive or, you know, or, or, or thick. Uh, and so, yeah, the biggest thing for us Um, which kind of starts in that episode I told you about, is that uh, uh, Ted Lasso has to be flawed as a human being. He can't just be the greatest, nicest, most proactive, optimistic, hopeful guy on the planet. He has to have uh, have personal shortcomings that'll hold him back or there's no long-term story to tell. There's just a sports movie. And, uh, uh, you know, Jason really kind of ventures in to, it's a spoiler alert for people that care, but depression and refusing to acknowledge depression because he grew up in an environment that maybe that, you know, that therapy wasn't, uh, something that was, you know, at everybody's fingertips or even thought of as normal for people. And, uh, watching that venture into this type of character's life is, was, uh, fascinating and might feel like a big right turn for some, but it's one of the things that we had to do to make him kind of a hero worth watching.
0: I do also want to ask about the theme song. You've got uh, Marcus Mumford did the theme song for your show and has some other music featured in the series. How did that wind up happening?
2: Uh, Look, the most fun thing, the weirdest thing uh, about the inception of this show is that Jason started from a point of saying, "I don't want to do this series just because those promotional videos were fun and goofy." He said, "You "You might not believe this, but every time I travel abroad, never in the states." football slash soccer is so big that I am more recognized as Ted Lasso than from SNL, Horrible Bosses, Where the Millers, anything. And by the way, you should see him over there. It's literally all the football fans like Ted Lasso, Lasso. And he was iconic over there in a place here that not even one out of 10 people has seen those videos. You know, And so um, the sheer amount of people that were already fans of that material, especially over there, Marcus Mumford being one, it was very easy to round up. Uh, and Marcus did all, you know, he did all the interstitial music. He wrote a, a song at the end that ended up being a big charity song over in the UK, his version of uh, a Walk Alone, and did the theme song super lucky, very weird for me as somebody that usually employs young composers out here to be talking to the lead singer. I, I felt like I couldn't give him notes, you know what I mean? Sometimes, <laughs> you know, because you want to be like, hey, could you make that one thing a little poppier? And then, you, you know, you're like, oh, right. It's the guy that sells out Wembley and stuff. I should probably just leave it be. But we had that experience, you know, over there on a, a massive level, so much so it translates even to the media day of it all. You know, the American press Activity for this show Was um, As to be expected uh, All three of us Have been through it before The European days Blew up Because I I just didn't realize The spotlight That this show has on it Internationally And Apple's Literally releasing shows Into 120 different countries You know Different regions So Very easy to get uh, Marcus Guest stars Football players Premier League teams Sponsors All that stuff Probably tougher to do The same thing here in the U.S.
1: (laughs) Do you have a sense yet of what European audiences are going to balk at in terms of the soccer accuracy? Are there things where you guys just had to throw it out the window and go, look, we can't do this accurately?
2: We had to drop a ton of money because uh, they've had things that have failed there with the Premier League before that, you know, it, it helped us out that we got a Premier League team, Crystal Palace, to give us their stadiums, you know, and uh, to play and, so, you know, to do that in actual stadiums with actual stuff. And uh, the biggest burden with an American TV schedule was to make the football sequences look real. And, uh, we got better and better at it. And hopefully it's uh, high enough over the bar. That, uh, um, and by the way, that's no different here. We've all seen, I mean, I'm sure you guys, as people that write about TV and film, have your favorite, oh, this person shouldn't be playing. Um, Anthony Perkins should not be a baseball pitcher in this movie, guys. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a huge, huge mistake. And you can cut around Tom Cruise playing catch with his son as much as you want, but at least once you should show, throw the actor, show the actor actually throwing a ball. That was the biggest burden was we knew that we had to try and make the football look real. And we lucked out that a lot of the regular cast are former football players. In fact, we even put partly because he's a great actor, but partly because it really helped us. uh, Episode six, you know, a, a, a Latin American player joins the team as a regular and he happened to be a pro football player before he was an actor. And so it's not surprising that most of the football sequences from that episode on involve him, <laughs> you know, just cause it's like, well, that guy's good. Yeah. And you can see his face and it's not just some stunt man's feet, you know?
0: Right. It's like watching Kevin Costner in a baseball movie, you know, he you can go. actually throw.
2: Yeah. So that's so a huge deal, right? Like Bull Durham, you go, yeah, show Kevin Costner in the batting cage, cut off of Tim Robbins the second he goes into his windup.
0: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I do want to ask, you know, look, you, you know, filming these crowd scenes, you know, I'm watching the show and I'm like looking at stadiums. And first of all, I'm having withdrawal and missing being at Dodger Stadium this summer. But I'm also now thinking season two, like, how do you shoot those those, those scenes? Like, have you thought about what that looks like or, and how you're writing it?
2: We're doing a bunch of shows and um, I have three different show, three different types of shows right now. One is one that acknowledges the pandemic as something that happened and that show exists out there right now. One is, uh, but it's an immediate thing, and we'll see what happens with it, is implying that the pandemic is still going on and involves masks and stuff. And then the third, which Ted Lasso falls under, is that we made, because when we shot it the first time, this wasn't even on our radar, for us, this is a show that it is not going to exist. Because we didn't make it exist in the year that we shot and we are actually going oh man if um this thing is still a day to day issue when a second season would come out you know if if we're lucky enough to do one people are going to want escapist entertainment because that's going to be a giant giant track you know and uh, uh obviously understating it so uh Ted Ted Lasso is one that it just doesn't it doesn't exist that way we weren't you know we aren't prepped to do uh and in the second season we'll do you know Half-empty stadiums with Zoom crowds—it's just too weird to even be writing. Because you'd also argue with the lead time of this stuff. The last thing people want to see if uh, we have moved past it, you know, as a world and as a country, is revisiting that, you know, as if it's happening all
0: over again. Yeah. So no, no cardboard cutouts in the stands. No, I know. Saying.
2: By the way, yeah. Although my son and I are zooming in, doing Zoom tickets for an NBA game soon. We're very excited.
0: You know, moving on to some of the other things that that are happening in your world. You know, you recently asked for a few episodes of Scrubs that featured blackface to be pulled from from Hulu. You know, looking back on on the experience of even writing and filming those episodes, what have you learned from that experience?
2: You know, it's really interesting. There was an awesome I don't know if you guys are John Oliver fans, but there was an awesome episode this uh, last weekend about, you know, American history and what we teach in schools on that stuff. And, uh, um, the decision to pull those episodes was, um, tricky because it's like, you know, there's a lot of different voices that I listen to and respect. And, uh, there's some, uh, people even that I've worked with before, they're like, oh, don't, don't change things and pull things, you know, put a a statement up at the beginning of them, you know, that says, Hey, here's the mistake we made. We're not going to, you know, gloss over it. We're going to remove it. And it's open for a topic of discussion. And so the decision on that show was tricky. What it came down to for me is, quite honestly, I, I wasn't getting day-to-day heat for this stuff, but Zach and Donald and Sarah Chalk were ultimately, yeah, and they're still front and center as actors and actresses, were ultimately getting crap for uh, a decision that no matter how you slice it, was mine. You know what I mean? And so we made the decision on that one to uh, pull it, and then we went and did an episode of a, a Zach and Donald's podcast with Sarah and an African-American journalist and stuff and kind of just said, hey, here's how we made the mistakes. Here's where we're coming from and kind of put that in the ethos as our as our discussion. I think if it was just I was even made this analogy to Zach and Donald, although I don't know if they cut it from their podcast. I think if it was an animated show and there weren't actors or actresses paying the social media price for it on a day-to-day basis, I probably would have left that stuff in and and faced it head-on and said, "Hey, here comes an episode with mistakes we made. Here's how to find out more about it. Here's how to discuss it, etc." But what I learned, you know, it was fascinating because I consider myself fairly well-read, and until I saw The Watchman, I didn't know that that anything ever happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That was part of the John Oliver show this weekend, you know, and I'm being educated now by TV and I went to a four-year institution in the South. You know, it's crazy. So um the biggest thing that that I learned on this stuff was A, it's hard in a modern era, you know, to look back at stuff that you did 15 to 20 years ago, especially if you were younger and and not be bummed out about certain stuff and makes you kind of think more as a little adult, but B, I'm most arrogant. I never thought there was an education aspect that I still needed to catch up on, you know? And, uh, um, it, it it's way too much talk about, you know, uh, a digression, but I would encourage people cause it was interesting uh, and I'm not doing it for self-aggrandizing re- re- reasons because I was the least interesting person on it to go listen to Zach and Donalds. It's uh, usually it's an episode to episode thing on Scrubs, but their podcast did Scrubs on Blackface and did it. We did a whole episode about it, just talking about it. It's a good start to a dialogue for us, anyways.
0: Yeah, not not to pick on you know on you at all, but you know, look, you you work with Christy Elia uh, on Undateable. Obviously, you know he's facing sexual misconduct allegations you know, how has what happened with him really, you know, has that changed how you approach to cast, you know, how you approach casting? I mean, I know, you know, Shonda Rhimes has her famous no assholes policy, right? Because she learned from Grey's Anatomy's early days and, and now does what I understand to be a very, very thorough vetting of people um, before she casts them in anything. But what, what have you learned from this process and, and how has that informed how you approach all of your shows going forward?
2: Uh, Look, the biggest thing I can say is, first of all, Shonda stole the no asshole policy quote from me, and uh, uh, (laughs) I will debate her on your show. Um, I've always believed that doing a TV show is like being at Thanksgiving with your family only for like six months at a time. And that means who hopefully all love each other. But even if you do, there's always one crazy uncle or aunt that drives everybody nuts and uh, shouldn't be allowed to have that third glass of wine. And, uh, and and you play musical chairs to see who has to sit next to him or her at dinner. And uh, my point, a long winded point is one of the things that we've always done on our shows is I say to every actor and actress, because what has changed is the TV business specifically has become more of a packaging industry where you sometimes are entering these, uh, partnerships, you know, with like, Hey, this shows a go. If you have one meeting with this actor or actress and they say yes, then you're doing it. Right. And we do vet people anecdotally. And, um, uh, I can confidently say, you know, to, uh, uh, every single lead we've ever had. Uh, on every show we had has vetted uh, well and, and we also take the time to tell um, actors and actresses especially let's look at the both sides of this you should take your time to talk to writers directors etc that have worked with that showrunner or worked with that director before as well it should be a two-way street even doing that you know you never know I mean I think believe it or not on scrubs and I, I can't get specifics. I don't remember the actor's name, but there is a person on that show that I believe ended up horribly murdering someone, you know, who was a, a, you know, a guest actor that was in an episode or two of that show. Point being, there's always going to be things like this that happen. What's more important is to not only do your homework up front, but establish a pattern of behavior that like the biggest rule on our shows is we look out for people that manage down very poorly. Because it's when you see someone that takes the dynamic of power and gets to be crappy to a PA or to a hair person, you know, or to someone that doesn't have, you know, the title that they can stand up and go, that's not right. Then you're in trouble if that's okay on your sets. So we've always kind of been pretty good about that. And I just think that, you know, we've been doing this long enough that you're going to occasionally have, you know, bummer situations.
1: Are are you seeing... A reckoning, though, across the comedy world, at least from your perspective, of attitudes that were tolerated for decades that are now not, you know, that are that people are finally coming clear on behaviors that people tolerated, condoned, etc., that that aren't really just part of the game in the way that they were treated for decades, really.
2: Uh, I'll tell you the, the different things that I've noticed, and so tell me if you guys have heard, seen the same things. One is, um, I do want to always take the time to say that I think there is many crappy people uh, and bad cultures in other businesses, just like Hollywood. I think Hollywood is is you know higher profile, but I think we do live in a society that if you're making somebody lots of money, you can you know in the past, essentially kill their pets and still keep your job. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, Because of the almighty capitalism and the dollar. But I do want to make it clear that I always put out there two things that I think matter. One is you will talk to men and women in the industry that had Great. You know, I'll, I'll talk about Gary Goldberg to the end of time. The guy set a culture there. I think he started daycare at the Paramount lot when he was doing family ties for, uh, uh, for, for, you know, staffers and moms and, and single parents and, and parents alike. He was always, uh, uh, inclusive and he was lovely. My point is there are a lot of great environments. I think that the, the thing that's hardest to face is Nobody that's been doing this is, has been surprised about the bad environments. You know what I mean? Is, I will tell you, I don't live in a, in a world yet that I've been shocked by any of the people, you know, or any of the situations I've heard about. And so what I hope has changed is the feeling that you're allowed to say something, you know, the, the second it sucks. Um, look, I'll tell you the only funny version I, to try and be at least a little comedic since I'm a comedy writer. Two young women that, that wrote on, on Cougartown, Rachel Levy, which was Rachel Spector's married to Dan, Dan, and, uh, Audrey Watchup was, uh, or, were, were, Watchup were both, uh, on Cougartown. And they're two young ladies that very bravely, when all this was going down in the, the first wave of the Me Too thing, you know, they relayed a story. About how, look, the first time we were on staff, the showrunner was a guy that um, was so kind of lascivious and inappropriate with women that I remember that we used to, you know, sit on a couch with like our legs pressed together, you know, so that he couldn't sit in between us, but he would always push in his way and sit in between us anyways and be inappropriate. And then she said, Audrey said, but you know, we're not going to name any names. And then, if you went on their IMDb page, because staff writers aren't listed in the credits, their first listed credit was with me and Kevin Beagle on Cougartown. And so, like, I came, I came home on a weekend, and it was like, why? I'm not really that active on Twitter right now. How come I have, like, 1,000 mentions? You know what I mean? And it was literally people going like, uh, oh, my God, is it Bill Lawrence? Did you do this? Do you, and so... I had to, I had to tweet to Audrey. I'm like, Hey, not for nothing, but how about you name names on this one? <laughs> and, uh, and she, uh, you know, they're friends and stuff too. And, and in a cool way that had, uh, the, uh, end result of what should have happened to that particular showrunner happened and he was, you know, he was done. But, um, more importantly for me as a white dude that had never faced that type of stuff in what was a misogynistic, arguably misogynistic and arguably uh, lily-white industry from the second I got in it. It was incredibly eye-opening to realize that people I considered friends um, and co-workers, not only had they experienced this, but were not until that moment comfortable enough to even talk about it, you know? And so, yeah, the biggest change I see is the amount of discussions I've had with younger writers, because I'm still lucky enough to work with young people who would probably not bring this stuff up as recently as a year or two years ago. Uh, You know, I've had probably a hundred conversations like this in writers rooms in the last year where I had maybe two or three in the first 20 years of my career. That makes sense. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. The the landscape definitely seems to be adjusting to the point where people feel empowered and they should feel empowered. So,
2: yeah, yeah, they should. And, you know, it's really interesting is the fears. I tell you, this is somebody that runs a room. The fears that people want to associate with it, like the the PC police is going to hurt comedy. It's all bullshit. Okay, Uh, because even in these rooms, if you feel safe and heard and allowed to say anything, and allowed to look someone in the eye and say, "Oh, that bums me out," in a way that it's addressed openly and honestly, nothing about how comfortable people feel pitching comedy ideas has changed. And that's all bullshit narrative from people, you know, that want to make it a problem. It's not a problem.
0: Well, we do like to close these interviews with the same question. what have you been watching and enjoying lately?
2: I was devastated by I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which I just finished. And um, I went to college with Patton Oswalt. Jonathan, Wiebe, John, well, it's John Stewart and I were like the three comedy dudes to go to William to marry. John was older. I was in the middle. Patton was only a year behind me. And what I thought would be a true crime show, which it was, was also kind of an exploration of of marriage and loss in a way that um, snuck up on me. because so I was ready to watch essentially, you know, this is cool, it'll be like an HBO Dateline episode. And it had so much more than that, it blew my doors off. I loved it. And then Dave is a show that easily could have been something that was not only not for me, but um, was a carbon copy of a, a, a thousand shows we've seen before. And whether it was Gator's bipolar episode or um, Dave's girlfriend's toast about the nature of romance and narcissistic love, you know, with celebrity. Uh, I was, I was like, wow, the fact that this show has that extra re- level is pretty amazing. And then the third one that I stumbled into because of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and I don't think a lot of people are talking about it. I'm still a, a cinematography nerd. Perry Mason as a show is beautiful. It looks like a uh, a sweeping feature film, and it's pretty darn good you know, well acted show too. But I'm looking at that thing going, wow, the bar has been set so high from back when I was, you know, trying to shoot seven pages in five days on a single camera show. It's pretty cool.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Bill.
2: Hey, it's fun talking to you guys
1: anytime. Um, Everybody, my pet peeve. If you want to work in television,
2: you have to watch television. I'm not going to ever, ever meet with anybody again that says I actually don't watch a lot of TV. You have to. I was trying to put it out there in the world. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a good one cool thanks
2: bill thanks guys
0: ted lasso premieres friday august 14th on apple tv plus
1: number five
0: as usual we wrap things up with the critics corner dan this week it's bleak you got a handful of new launches and i'll, I'll rattle through them but it's not very exciting cbs all all access has animated comedy star trek lower decks peacock launches hitmen Lifetime Bows Docu Series surviving Jeffrey Epstein and Hard Knocks returns on HBO. What you got, Dan?
1: What I have is a lot of anticipation for next week when there are some really big shows premiering that I'm actually fairly excited about. So yay, next week. This week, on the other hand, man, it is leak. I told you last week to watch Immigration Na- Nation on Netflix, so you know about that. It is harrowing and unpleasant, but also largely essential. It is it is really good, and it remains the best new thing you can be watching. Uh, I got a couple chuckles out of Star Trek Lower Decks, which comes from former podcast guest Mike McMahon. It's a lot of references to Star Trek things. And if you like hearing references to various different Klingon delicacies and alien rituals and various pieces of Starfleet legislation, yeah, you'll probably laugh at it. It's definitely painless. It's, it's 25 minutes you might chuckle a couple times, you'll smile a few more times, et cetera. It's just not very good, and it's not very funny, and it's not very expansive, and it does very little, I don't think, with what is a really good premise. On the other hand, I've only seen four episodes, so who knows? Uh, our colleague, Ingu Kang, called Hitman on Peacock the best of the Peacock originals that she's seen so far, which is saying precious little. So there you go, though. Take that with a grain of salt. Um, Surviving Jeffrey Epstein, which premieres this weekend, is a lot like Filthy Rich Jeffrey Epstein, the Netflix multi-parter that premiered last month or two months ago, I guess, end of May, because it was before Emmys. And yeah, it's it's a lot like that. I'm not accusing anyone of anything, obviously, because the story is what the story is. And the available supply of victims able and willing to go on camera and Name things is is finite, so it's not shocking that about three quarters of the talking heads in this documentary are identical to the talking heads in the other documentaries, and that they say basically the exact same things. There are definitely some things that this one does differently from the other, and I'm not in any way saying this one is worse than the Netflix one, because the Netflix one was fine. It's, you know, it's hampered by the currency of the story and the fact that the story is still developing and the fact that a lot of the people involved... If they happen to be alive, they aren't gonna say things because they can't incriminate themselves. So there are a lot of limitations on any documentary like this legally. So the limitations are the limitations. The principles able to talk are the principles able to talk. This is very comparable. If you watched the Netflix thing, I don't know that you necessarily need to watch this new one. If you didn't, you could absolutely watch it. It is a great, it is a great opportunity for survivors to have their voices heard. That is what the value is. And there is a tremendous amount of value to that. But that's also what the Netflix documentary was. So I don't know that anyone needs to watch both of them. That is that is about what I will say about that. And so yeah, but anyway, next week, lots of good stuff coming next week. Uh, Really excited to talk about some of next week's premieres.
0: Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This, of course, feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Misha Green of HBO's highly anticipated Lovecraft Country.
1: Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing because that helps spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter where we are happy to engage in your questions, comments, and concerns. But if you have mailbag questions for future episodes when news is not as excitingly and wonkily news-filled as this week, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
0: Until next week, Dan.